everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Very, very excited to be here with you. We have a great show for you. It's jam-packed. We have two different segments on the show. Both are going to be excellent. One is with Mike Preisner, who is from the Empire Files and the Eyes Left podcast. He's an anti-war veteran, and he's going to be talking about a major scoop that he has about Ron DeSantis. We're also going to be talking to some guests about sex workers and a documentary about sex workers. So I'm going to bring them on in a second. Let me just tell you about who they are. Tammy Keshiak-Gold is a multidisciplinary artist, cultural worker, and a professor at Hunter College, CUNY. Her teaching focuses on documentary production and LGBTQ nonfiction studies. As a filmmaker, Tammy has produced documentaries, including Every Mother's Son, Juggling Gender, Politics, Sex, and Identity, Making the Impossible Possible, the Story of Puerto Rican Studies at Brooklyn College, RFK in the Land of Apartheid, the Last Hunger Strike, Ireland 1981, among others. She is the recipient of a Rockefeller, Guggenheim, and Fulbright Fellowships, and she's won countless awards, including AFI Independent Filmmakers Fellowship and Tribeca Audience Award, among others. We are also bringing on to the virtual stage Jay Lee Oshiro Brantley, who is an organizer, sex worker, and survivor who does advocacy and research around disabilities, poverty, food, housing, and stability and violence. They have co-authored academic papers, conducted interviews and focus groups, done community organizing and made documentaries and served at organizations like the Ishtar Collective, Glitz, SOAR Institute, Decriminalized Sex Work, and New York Transgender Advocacy Group. They were an advisor for the Museum of the City of New York's Transgender Activism Exhibit and received the 2019 Marsha P. Johnson Community Leader Award from New York Transgender Advocacy Group, where they have served as the president of the New York State Gender Diversity Coalition since 2019. So without any further ado, let us bring into the chat, Tammy and Jay Lee. Hello. Hi. Hi there. Hi, thank you so much for joining. Hi, welcome. Very excited and happy to be here. Thank you. So I want to know how you two met and how this film that you're both working on, Tammy, you're producing it, Jay Lee, you're a consultant. How did this project start? Well, there's two different questions. One is how Jay Lee and I met. And why don't we start there? Because we're both here and it's, I, th I think it's important that those of us who are filmmakers, we often are also activists. And in doing a film, it's not me doing a film in isolation. And so I met Jay Lee in the work that they do, the work within organizing, within bringing visibility and and um, both not just visibility, but ideology to the struggle to decriminalize sex work. So we met recently and I was really impressed, not just with the spirit that Jay Lee, Jay Lee, you're here, so I don't want to talk about like you're not here, but your spirit, your commitment, and the fact that you are really a visionary. And, and I've realized that really early on when I first saw a lot of the events that you were hosting and doing during COVID. So that was my introduction, really meeting Jay Lee in a virtual world. And then finally meeting Jay Lee, meeting you when you were presenting a film that you were one of the producers of. So that's, that's how um, we came together. In terms of the question of decriminalizing sex work. My introduction to that was from the book, The End of Policing by Alex Vitale. Yeah, he's been on the show and he and I are colleagues. And when he first had the manuscript for the book, even before it was published, um, I met with him and said, wow, The End of Policing. I mean, that is... That is the essence of what I struggle for, the end of the 
carceral state, the end of how we understand the militarization of our cities by the police. So we decided to um, produce something together, and there was a lot of process in that. And then the chapter in his book about decriminalizing sex work really jumped out as a way to talk about policing, police brutality, the system that we have that's driven by white supremacy, transphobia, homophobia, that over-polices communities that are some of the most marginal, made to be marginal. So that's where we jumped off. And that's kind of how I started. And I had a lot and a lot of learning to do in the process. Great. Thank you. And we're going to talk more about the documentary that you're working on. And Jay Lee, what about you? How did you get involved in this film and in this issue too? That's um, a great question. Um, you know, how we kind of end up collaborating with each other as uh, filmmakers and advocates. Thank you for those kind words, by the way, that were, <laughs> were said. You know, I think one can only um, Google Tammy and then be quite impressed with, <laughs> with all the accomplishments and, you know, um, the awards and these kinds of things. I think, you know, sometimes when you just kind of focus in on on doing your your work and have a passion for it, particularly if it's it has an advocacy bent, whether or not that's the, the focus, I think you just um, you end up just doing like prolific work. You just you know you keep making projects because the the deeper you dig into the rabbit hole of injustice, you realize that it's kind of bottomless. <laughs> and then you go, oh, I was just going to do this project, but now I'm here. And all of a sudden I, I find myself as an advocate through, through what, what, whatever, maybe filmmaking, if you're an artist, um, you know, whatever your medium medium is. And I think that that's a lot, um, you know, how, how I end up collaborating with other, you know, artist advocates is that we kind of just started in one thing and whether it's like housing injustice or food instability or, you know, disability justice, or in my case, um, you know, sex worker rights. And then it just, you know, becomes very, becomes very intersectional, right? Because you realize that we, we don't live our lives in silos, right? There are many, many ways uh, in which all these kind of injustices in the world um, inform each other and sometimes exacerbate each other. And actually, I, I, don't, I don't even think Tammy knows this. I met Alex this summer in Portugal, in Lisbon, at a, a conference I haven't even told uh, Tammy that, <laughs> but that was where yeah, I first met, met him at a reading of the book um, in Lisbon uh, right after the Law and Society conference. I was um, presenting a paper, at, and certainly he was as well. So a bunch of, bunch of academics, and I definitely did not belong in that setting. Uh, not yet, not yet, but maybe one day. <laughs> they, they let me sneak in. They let me sneak in. Infiltrate? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Whores were everywhere you want to be. Oh, that's good. That could be the, the subtitle to, to the film. And uh, I didn't mention the film is called It's Just a Job. So, Jay Lee, tell us about how you started out as an organizer, organizing around sex work. You know, it was really by accident. I, um, I had uh, definitely been kind of a, an advocate for other issues um, outside of the sex industry, but had been a sex worker myself weirdly like not thinking about reform within my industry, which I think is, is actually really common for a lot of labor folks. We don't think about reforming our own industry. We don't think about the injustices that keep, um, keep us in, you know, different parts of stigmatization or marginalization. We're just there. We're trying to make a dollar, you know, we're trying to work (laughs) just like anyone else. And I think, um, you know, I, uh, I really wanted to, to go into research and that was my passion. I've been a filmmaker for many years in different capacities and I wanted to use film as a research methodology um, for sex workers that I was super interested in. And as I was trying to find, you know, work to, to do research in as like with my crappy little like undergrad degree and like no sort of academic experience doing research, um, I landed in a whole community of people that were like, do you want to start doing advocacy? You know, we do community-based research in advocacy worlds. So that's, that's where I started. And this film follows several sex workers and talks to both sex workers and advocates and some policy people. And you even, shockingly enough, had a 
prosecutor, which blew me away. You actually had a prosecutor you spoke with, Tammy, who opposes prosecuting sex workers, who I guess supports decriminalization. And you speak to some local politicians, also former guests of the show, Ron Kim, for instance. But can you guys tell us what the goal of decriminalization is and why it's different from legalization? Well, decrim is to decriminalize a job, to decriminalize every aspect. For example, decriminalizing both the sex worker and the consumer, often called the Johns, that it's full decriminalization and that there's a lot of different things out there called the Nordic model, the end demand model, the entrapment model. And they are where you don't don't criminalize the sex worker, but you arrest the John. And that creates a whole bunch of problems unto itself. And so in the film, we're trying very much to tease apart things that are sometimes complicated. And this is a complicated one, because if you look at sex work as something negative, you might want to end the demand. But if you look at sex work, um, consensual sex work among adults, and I emphasize consensual, then we're talking about why do we want to end the demand? It's a job. Um, That's how we got the title. It's just a job. And so the difference between why people in the movement are demanding, fighting for, protesting for, full decrim, not legalization, is because legalization in a capitalist society, legalization where we have racism, where we have all these isms that are alive and well, if we legalize sex work, there'll be a two-tier system, just like what's happened in terms of the legalization of marijuana. We have a case study of marijuana and who got impacted by that. The corporations took it over, small business wiped out, people are still incarcerated. The the legalization doesn't guarantee justice. So the idea of taking the, the criminality in the job away allows people to have equal access in this form of work. Um, Jay Lee, you want to yeah. talk about that? Yeah, I think that's a, a really great, a really great um, overview. I mean, I think, you know, when you, you know, when people say, okay, oh, you, we want to legalize it, we want to decriminalize it, they're many times using those two words interchangeably. But as Tammy said, this does create a two-tiered system, right, where people who are already at the margins usually and affected most by policing, by criminalization, uh, by incarceration, those are the folks that suffer under a two-tiered system. You have people of color, you have poor folks, you have trans folks, you have people living with disabilities, folks that have, uh, you know, prior rap sheets, like, it's just, it's a compounded reality that when you legalize something, you're still making it criminal. The behavior is still criminal. You're just saying, under these circumstances, we won't arrest you. You know, the United States is um, only has one state that has legal, legalized prostitution. Of course, that's Nevada. But a lot of people don't know. They assume that Vegas, of course, is is uh, legalized prostitution. It's not. It's outside of, of Vegas. And, and Vegas has the highest rates of um, prostitution arrests in the entire country, and it's right next door. So here's a that's a concrete example of what happens in a place uh, where there's legalization um, in smaller rural towns. Many times they're monopolies. Many times they are tied into folks that have sort of legacy, um, you know, stakes in keeping it, uh, you know, criminal. And and for some people who are brothel owners, that is the case because if it were to become decriminalized, then their, their business goes away, right? You have, um, and you have a control on the market. People, you know, of color, people with various bodies, people of all genders, many times get left out of those systems because they want to homogenize it in a way that's the most palatable. You know, you can think of it as sort of, you know, 
um, you know, the Walmartification of an industry to say like, okay, well, we only want these people working here. We only want uh, it under these, here's the market, you know, they control the market. They can, and, um, you know, it just affects a, like a lot of smaller business owners and individual business owners, just like Tammy said. It also seems to me, I think a lot of people really love talking about their opinions on sex work and whether they think it's liberating or exploitative. But to me, it's kind of like either way, making it criminal, criminalizing it is not good for sex workers. It's almost like I don't really care about people's opinions on it. I care. People sometimes will focus more on sex work as an idea than they do on the lived experiences of sex workers. And it's just, it's never going to go away. I mean, you can try to, to take away the demand. It won't go away. So I just find it really like people who are, I get that. I get why people, some people feel conflicted. But to me, I really think that to like oppose decriminalization requires living with your head in the sand. And refusing to look at how you're going to put these people in harm's way. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's right. That's right. One of the reasons why we need to talk about we need to talk about stigma, because you have a job and it's there's stigma associated to the job. Right away, there's moral condemnation, and we in the film are really saying that stigma reinforces criminalization. And criminalization reinforces stigma. So if we look at another kind of job, if we look at the horrendous job of working in a company like McDonald's, making very little money, being treated awfully, having to work like on an assembly line, we could stigmatize that job. We don't. We don't stigmatize jobs of people working in the fields, picking tomatoes with the toxic waste put on them to take care of the bugs in the fields that are hitting the farm workers. That's not stigmatized. So the first thing we have to say is, why is it stigmatized? Why is, and the stigma, it's massive. It's massive. The lowest denominator or the lowest element in any humor, in anything, is call somebody either a whore, a hooker, whatever. It's about reinforcing stigma. And the this goes to sexism, it goes to male supremacy. And the way it plays out in the United States is that there's a hierarchy and it relates to race, gender, sexual orientation. And that's where some people are on the top and some people are not. And we also have to look at that because the, the policing of sex workers who are white, traditionally beautiful, very tall. I've been taken on tours of Wall Street where there are places where the end of the day or the end of the week, there are sex parties in corporate America. And this doesn't surprise any of us. And all the working women are white and Russian. So right away, we have to um, we have to understand the intersectionality of of the criminalization and the stigma. And so it might be good to show some of the um, yeah, Brad. Let's show some of these. Uh, has, I mean, stigma is around today, but let's show some of these posters that you feature in the documentary. So this is uh, She May Look Clean, but pickups, good time, girls, prostitutes, spread syphilis and gonorrhea. You can't beat the axis if you got VD. So this was a wartime poster, obviously. VD is venereal disease, by the way. What STIs used to be called before they were called STDs, then they, before that, venereal disease. Uh, this is a sign that says smash the prostitution racket. Prostitutes spread venereal disease. Um, and then... This is a sign, men who know say no to prostitutes, spreaders of syphilis and gonorrhea. These are put out by the U.S. government. These were put out. And we have to remember the role of our government, the role in terms of being a government that promotes war and 
Yes, it was the Second World War where those posters come from, but it's the same thing. It's like creating a judgment, a stigma, the negativity. These gentle women, they look good on the outside. They're evil on the inside. So it's an extension of, you know, hating women and all women. Cis, trans, there's a hate of women. And one of the things that I've really learned about is the experience that women, trans women, almost 95% trans women of color experienced by the police, law enforcement. And I don't know, Jaylee, do you want to talk a little about the struggle around walking while trans? Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, I think before that, I just wanted to address something that was previously said. I do think that there is stigma from working at McDonald's. I want to say that. Like, I just think it's a different kind of stigma. It's like a class so stigma. Eat, yes, right. And so we find ways to bifurcate all the time as people and to say this and that. And I think that it's a different type of stigma. But there is this kind of idea that even though a person is engaging in this type of labor, there's some kind of working class honor to it, right? This idea of you're working your way, you're you're working the system, maybe it's an know, honest job. It's an honest job, exactly. And so the stigmatization is there, but it's in a different way. When you have a moral judgment upon something, giving it um giving it validity in the culture, like some kind of sort of heroic hero worship to be poor and struggling, then you then you, you know, people are more more likely to, for, to have, um, you know, sort of, oh, well, you know, work hard and you'll, you'll climb the corporate ladder. We don't have that, right? Our, our, our industry, if you have someone who is pulling in six figures a year as a sex worker, they will not have the same respect typically in those circles that a person who is probably working in at McDonald's and pulling in 20 to 30,000, right? So that's an interesting, I think a, a really interesting, um, lens to view it through this idea of economics because in any other industry where you would have an overwhelmingly feminized body or woman making six figures seven figures some some folks i know as well and doing so well and owning their own businesses and having the independence and um starting their own nonprofit uh, organizations you know helping others in their industry in any other place you you would be like that's amazing you go girl <laughs> right. That would be yeah. the, that would be the perspective. But there is we do not extend the same reality to folks that are in the sex industry. It's like, oh, no, no, no. You can become a, a millionaire. Just don't do it this way. You can't do it that way. So I just wanted to touch on that briefly. Um, I think. Thank you. Oh, yeah. No, no. I mean, I just it's a different type of stigma. And, you know, that's you know, you mentioned the, 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 you know, hierarchy in, in our world, we call it the hierarchy, right? This idea that there's, you know, even within our sort of marginalized groups, we bifurcate ourselves as well and say, oh, well, I'm, I'm doing this type, you know, the proliferation of OnlyFans is a concrete example of this. Well, I'm only doing content. I'm only taking pictures, right? Um, and so this idea of like destigmatizing, what is essentially pornography for, you know, the Midwest housewife that needed to make some money during the pandemic, that's fine. But folks who've been doing this as a living, you know, who are on a different website, who are maybe, you know, doing different types of content or didn't have a different body than what was mentioned earlier that is, you know, looked upon as uh, much more privileged. Those are the types of st stigma that we create within the hierarchy of sex work in and of itself. And that also has to stop because... You know, sex is sex, work is work. You know what I mean? And 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 uh, they need to just be exactly what they are. Sex can be sexy. Sex can be boring. Sex can be powerful. Sex can be um, bad. Sex can be fulfilling. Sex can be uh, monetizing. It is just a thing. It has whatever value we put onto it. The people engaged in it. Sex without consent is rape. Right. But it's still a sexual activity. So we it is really important as we're doing this destigmatizing work that we don't give a word of value that it does not have. That's just is a thing. And it's up to us to place that value upon it, um, depending on how we do it, with what agency, with what power, with what resources and those people coming together that are having it. 
So I just, you know, work is the same way. Work is just work, you know? It can be empowering, can be amazing. But but to bring back the point about the walking mall trans aspects, you know, in 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 New York State, we had something on the books um, for many years up until 2021. We didn't even pass this law. It was loitering for the purposes of prostitution, colloquially termed walking while trans, because the overwhelming amount of people who were policed by this were black and brown trans women, and in overwhelmingly in one large neighborhood. And the, and the neighboring neighborhood in, in New York, Queens and, and Brooklyn. Uh, and so this was high, a highly, highly profiling uh, law that was used overwhelmingly to target trans women of color, especially those that were migrant workers. Um, ICE was heavily involved usually um, uh, in the whole, you know, uh, in the entire aspect from, you know, vice raids to, to you know, trafficking, being there in the anti-trafficking courts when when folks were, were let out. So, um, excuse me, ICE is, is what I was uh, talking about. So it was really targeted against a lot of migrant women um, and 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 cisgendered black and brown women as well, but overwhelmingly trans women of color. And what is the status of that? We repealed it finally in 2021. Um, and I will tell you this, we we had the votes to take it to the floor in June of 2020 during the uprising, the racial reckoning and, and the current majority leader refused to do it because it wasn't politically expedient. So she thought it would be better for, uh, for, you know, people to continue being arrested during the height of the pandemic for another eight to nine months rather than, you know, uh, it, it to be, you know, um, repealed immediately. I mean, we had, we had like 70 something percent of the votes in June and it wasn't until I think January that it finally mm-hmm. went forward. 2021. 2021. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it was January second. I don't know. I don't know, but I think it was pretty close to the new year. It was a very oh, yeah. It was definitely after the new year for sure. For sure, it was exciting. Almost I mean, I think so much struggle led by trans women of color brought that victory. And you know, when I show the rough cut of the film to people. I haven't shown it to many people, but the advisors and my family have seen it. They always say, why are trans women the leaders? And we have to answer that and we don't do it yet. That's a big issue that we have to bring up and highlight. I ask the question, why? It's the leadership of the decriminalization, decrim movement is coming from trans women of color. And I mean, we have to, we have to say it. That's the, that is the leaders who led this thing to end the walking while trans ban. And the thing about it is an injustice to one is an injustice to all. So by getting rid of that statute, what we've also been able to do is make it easier without this um, it's not just walking while trans. What this means is you are a police officer can no longer stop someone and arrest them because they think they're soliciting with the purpose of prostitution. They cannot do that. Cis, trans, white, people of color, men, gay, it can no longer be done. So the leadership from the trans community is what gave a victory to all of us. And we need to really point that and bring that home in the film. What do you think, Jaylee? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, why is that, why is that significant? The, well, you know, trans women of color are a very small percentage of the population. Very small. They're a small percentage of the LGBTQ population, but they are overwhelmingly targeted by police. The, the, the arrest rates are astronomical. They're dis- gro- grotesquely disproportionate, not just arrests, but also pr- prosecutions as well. So the point of it is these are the people that are most affected by policing and the criminality of, 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 um, of prostitution. And so when you think about it in terms of that, here's, here's our folks that are the folks that are being arrested the most. They're being arrested over and over and over again. So if they even wanted to leave the sex industry, you're making it impossible for them to do so if they ever desire to do that because you you basically 
put them in the system and keep them in the system. And with things like the Lording for the Purposes of Prostitution, it's literally a law that was created to punish people who possibly look like they were a prostitute. Can you imagine? This is stop and frisk. That's exactly what it is. So it's just like you, you look like a whore. You look like a whore. So we are going to stop and arrest you. And that's going to go on your record. And there are lording for the purposes of prostitution country all across the United States. We keep trying to strike them down. Um, But then those arrest records are on, you know, folks rap sheet for the rest of their lives, including, by the way, people who were trafficked into sex work, who were forced, you know, into sex work will have these arrests um, still on their their record, you know, which is one of the reasons why we always are trying to fight for vacature of those convictions for survivors of trafficking. And it's extremely important that we understand the difference between trafficking and consensual work, because if you don't understand that, you will get foundationally, you will get everything wrong on top of it. Yeah. And in fact, I think a lot of people, including people in the chat, they're saying that they've seen people trafficked and there's a lot of police rape and uh, of sex workers. And there, I think for some people, that's a reason to make it illegal. But given those two things, to me, that's just an argument for we should be separating those things. We should be separating it because uh, trafficking is, is, you know, is something that is, is against one's consent. And in fact, we know, I mean, you guys can talk about this more than I can, but how when you push things into the underbelly of society, like when they made that, um, the, rent boy illegal or they've made other websites illegal because they want to shut down trafficking. They say what happens is that people are much more vulnerable and all these systems that were created so that people can warn other people about certain bad actors, those no longer exist. And all you're doing is like, you're creating a non-consensual situations. Absolutely. And I will ask the the audience that has any skepticism around this idea of what happens when we criminalize something. um, Just just look at where we're at right now. We're in post Roe v. Wade, where abortions are now illegal across the United States. Does that make people safer? Has that made people more or less vulnerable? Has it made it more difficult for them to get their health care? Has it stigmatized them? This is a concrete, real-life example of what happens when you criminalize something that is a a public health reality, that is a human right. It is a human right for bodily autonomy, to do what you want to do with your body. As long as you are not hurting another person who is an adult, you have the right to do whatever you want to do with your body. It is yours. The same way with sex work. If you are not hurting someone, if you are not coercing them into sex work. And by the way, for those of us who are anti-trafficking, you know, warriors like myself, the only way, the only way to fight trafficking in the sex industry is to decriminalize it. Because every time you criminalize something further, you make it harder for folks to come out of exploitative situations. That's why the World Health Organization, Amnesty International, uh, Oh, like multiple, multiple organizations in, in the United Nations all recommend the full decriminalization of adult consensual sex work. And we emphasize this is adult consensual sex work, totally different from sex trafficking. So I don't know what people are saying in terms of the chat, but the the correlation is so big. The speaking about this, the nonprofits that soak up so much of the economic resources to dominate the discourse on that all sex work is trafficked, that you have to end sex work by ending the demand, and that there's a way to stop sex work by the, criminalizing the entire field. Sex trafficking is not consensual sex work. And there is a really, it's important that we make this demarcation. And one of the things in the film is the prosecutor says that when you criminalize, penalize anything, it goes underground. Just like what Jay Lee was saying about abortions. You could make them illegal. They're not going to stop. 
they're going to become more dangerous. They're going to go underground. And that is a lot of how we have to understand the question of the distinction between consensual and trafficked, and then the, the need to be able to recognize if there's criminalization, those who are trafficked cannot come out to police because then they would be criminalizing themselves because sex work is criminal. So you see it's this kind of interesting um, layered contradictions. But the film is trying very hard to make the point, absolutely, consensual sex work is consensual sex work among adults. Period. Exchange of money. Someone wrote in the comments, you can't support decarceration and then turn around and oppose the decriminalization of sex work. Those positions are irreconcilable, which I think is spot on. Um, do you have any, uh, you've been so generous with your time and we've actually gone over, um, but, you know, because this is such a great discussion. Uh, is there anything else you want to make sure that we we touch, touch on? I would love to just plug um this weekend was a pretty historic weekend uh, for a variety of reasons. One, it is, was a very you know hard for many of us. Carol Lee, um, aka the Scarlet Harlot, the person who coined the term sex work, sex worker, um, she passed away um, late last week, and um, it was a, a, a really hard thing for for many of us because she's been such a, a huge figure in the movement. But it was also incredibly um powerful timing because this weekend myself and, and and many other organizers in new england um we put together the first ever new england sex work summit in manchester new hampshire which is surprising for many people that it's not like in a big city but the the greatest um, movement towards decriminalization in this country right now is actually in new england um in places like vermont new hampshire Rhode Island. These are the places that are having the most uh, movement forward in state legislatures around decriminalization efforts. So, um, yeah, if my organization is called the Ishtar Collective for anyone who would like to, you know, support us, we're a nonprofit as well. And we're Vermont's only sex worker led and really sex or only only sex worker organization. We also support survivors of trafficking as well. So if you want to donate, please check us out, ishtarcollective.org. Um, we have a farm. We have a farm and hookers be growing some food up there. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things that's important for us um, as we do these fights uh, to to make sure that this industry is safer and uh, more equitable is that I can't fight for the right of myself and all of my fellow sex workers to do our work um, in, in, in a decriminalized environment. If I can't always if I can't also fight for the right of, you know, black trans women not to do this work if they don't want to, right? right? Because really if we don't create economic opportunities for people to do whatever they want to do in, in this world, whether it's become president or an engineer or whatever the case it may be, then, then that's, that's societal coercion in my, in my, my viewpoint. So I'm also fighting for my trans siblings to be able to have access to every single economic opportunity they have, labor opportunity that they want. Um, and that's how we do, you know, that's how we do this kind of intersectional work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was hard. I didn't know Carol Lee was was sick. I was shocked when I got, when I read it. Yeah. An amazing human, amazing human that's been doing this work since, you know, 70s, 80s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, so I hope your audience uh, stays tuned to the release of the film. Yeah, it's, when do you think it's going to be released? Um, oh, God. When, hopefully, like, mid-2023, the issue of independent filmmaking and what I also called passionate and passion filmmaking is that we don't have money. And so it's always fundraising and fundraising. So I'm at that point right now to fundraise, but then also to understand that we have a, it's urgent 
that this film get out. It's urgent that this discussion open up and that we challenge people who don't get it and that we have a tool in our hands and that this film, a study guide that will go with the film, a way to have sections of the film so it could be very short in parts so that it's not just committed to people who have the time to sit down and watch 70 minutes. We know it's important to do that. We need to do it as soon as possible. And so that's why I'm in a hurry. You know, I feel like I'm on a treadmill, running, running, running. So I'd say mid-2023. Okay, great. Yeah, we should have you guys back on because I would love, there's so many comments in in the chat that I would actually want you to respond to. So let's do this again, because I think there's so many things that people still struggle to wrap their heads around. Um, And I think people need to be... I, you know, like I see some people in the chat that are saying, in my opinion, uh, things that are almost like just counter uh, illogical, like saying that that it needs to be illegal because there's a lot of rape in sex work. It's like that's exactly why it needs to be decriminalized. Like, what? how do you think you're making people safer if it's an illegal industry? Why do you think that sex workers and people across the board that are uh, over-policed, like any feminized body, every any woman, why do they not go to the police when they are assaulted? Just ask yourself that question. When you have all these barriers, they're not going to be believed. What were you wearing is the question. Did you bring this? Retraumatizing a survivor? Putting criminality between them and justice is insane. Please check your facts, people, and start looking uh, through the lens of public health rather than your own limited morality around this issue. It's about morality. And I don't know where that listener or that viewer gets the comes up with the idea that most sex workers are raped in their in their job. Um, Absolutely. I've been a sex worker for uh, full time, 12 years. I have never been sexually assaulted in sex work ever. And you're also a survivor, right? I'm a survivor. Yes. Of labor exploitation outside of the sex industry. I'm a survivor of sexual assault outside of the sex industry. Both of them were in my publicity company job in my previous life. So let's have real conversations, right? You want to stigmatize sex work? Many of us have never experienced uh, injustice or sexual assault in those situations, but we sure as hell did when we were bartending. So let's have some real conversations. Yeah. And I'm certainly a survivor of sexual violence against me. And I've never been a sex worker. And I was raped as a child, as a teenager. That was not that I was not a sex worker. And I was violently raped. So let's get, let's really look into this and not come up with percentages if we don't really study this and really speak to, speak to sex workers. Sex workers must be part of this discussion and they must be at the table. Well, thank you guys so much. That was such a great thing to end on. Great note to end on. I think um, you both made such important points. Thank you so and much. I'd love, love to have you back. Thank you. Thank you. I was going to say, I would love to be back if you invited uh, yeah, again. Yeah. Thank you so much. And next Great. time you'll come back with your camera on. <laughs> yeah, I will. I will. I will. Great. Say hello to all, okay. everybody out there. Appreciate it. And we're going to, we're going to sign off by, uh, we don't go anywhere because we have Mike Preisner coming on, but while we, uh, Brad, why don't we play Tammy's clip from um, Every Mother's Son? Because we can't play a trailer from um, It's Another Job uh, for legal reasons but we're going to play this trailer from uh, another documentary that Tammy did. And then uh, after the trailer, we'll be joined by Mike Preisner, who's going to talk about this major scoop, this major story that he broke about Ron DeSantis. Good. Okay. Another film about aggressive policing.
night that Anthony was killed, our city suffered a great loss. And it had to do with public trust of the people that we've empowered to protect and serve us. Since then, this family has worked day and night to restore that public trust. Proud of my son. I know that he wants justice and for me to continue to get justice for other families. At the end of the 1990s, a decade in which many American cities adopted aggressive law enforcement strategies, a new civil rights movement started to gain public attention. Born in communities across the United States, it was made up of families whose loved ones had been killed by police officers. I learned that my son was killed in the vestibule of his apartment by four police officers and that they shot at him 41 times. Our heart has been broken for the rest of our lives. But we want to be among those who want to make change. I was watching the 10 o'clock news and they announced that there was a a Gideon Bosch that was killed in Borough Park in a hail of bullets. I must have screamed on the top of my lungs. I called the precinct and I was hysterical crying and I begged them, please tell me. I hope you can learn something from this terrible tragedy and that somewhere there will be justice and that there will be changes. This is the story of a group of mothers in New York City whose sons were killed by police officers and who have turned their personal tragedy into an opportunity for change. from Tammy's other film, Every Mother's Son, and that was made in 2004, and it's also great. So we're going to bring on our next guest, Mike Preisner, who joined the Army three months before the 9-11 attacks, and in March 2003 was part of the invasion of Iraq. After 12 months in the occupation, he became an outspoken opponent of the war and became known for speeches, protests, and veterans organizing against U.S. imperialism. Since 2015, he has been the producer and co-writer for Abby Martin's show, The Empire Files, and he is also the host of Eyes Left, a socialist anti-war military podcast. And everyone, like this stream right now. If you haven't liked it, give a thumbs up because this show deserves it, but also those guests deserve it and Mike Preisner really deserves it. So thumbs up, everyone. Okay, let's bring him on. Hi, Mike. Hey. Hi. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining. My pleasure. So you broke a major story. And before you get into the story, which is about Ron DeSantis, I was wondering, because I listened to your podcast about it, how did you even stumble onto this in the first place? Like, what made you think of looking into his military past? Um, you know, he had a, an ad for his gubernatorial re-election campaign where he is a, an Air Force pilot. It's called Top Gov. And, uh, you, you know, it, actually, yeah. sure. So, I, um, you know, I saw that and it was funny to me because I knew that he wasn't in the Air Force and was not a pilot, but that he did have some military background. And so I decided to look into that and to see what it was. And the thing that piqued my interest in the story was, you know, he, he I think is still in the military, um, but he has a military pass. He had been in the military since 2004. And the thing that stuck out to me was we know that he did a tour uh, in Guantanamo Bay. And when he ran for governor in 2018, there was a lot of Florida media in particular that was trying to find out what he did at Guantanamo Bay. It was as part of, he had only alluded to it. He said, I've, I was served at Gitmo, but that's all he ever said. Nobody knows what he did there. So when I found all these stories from Florida press for him, his 2018 campaign, all they did was basically take at face value what the Navy and what other officers had said. And so all that you would find in the media was, that Ron DeSantis, as a JAG lawyer, which is the military's legal system, was there to ensure, quote, uh, the human rights of detainees are respected and that the U.S. was operating 
within the boundaries of international law. And there's also interviews with fellow officers who worked in the Guantanamo and superiors who said that was his job, was to ensure the human rights of detainees and ensure that international law was being followed. And that's all, that, that's all there was. It wasn't questioned. It was just printed as, this is what Ron DeSantis did at Guantanamo Bay. Anyone who knows anything about Guantanamo Bay knows that 2006, the year that Ron DeSantis was there as the human rights lawyer, was the height of the Bush torture program. And the entire world was looking at Guantanamo Bay. The United Nations was calling for it to be shut down. And 2006, that same year, the United Nations Human Rights Board met and said it was in complete violation of international law for indefinite detention, torture, and all of this. And so that's what made me want to look into it, is knowing that he was there, but the only uh, answer to what he was doing was something that just could not be true. Okay, so let's take a look at this video. Trigger warning, it's an awful video that... um obviously, because it's uh, Ron DeSantis. Uh, And then we'll get into your investigation. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is your governor speaking. Today's training evolution, dogfighting, taking on the corporate media. The rules of engagement are as follows. Number one, don't fire unless fired upon. But when they fire, you fire back with overwhelming force. Does it say that in the bill? I'm asking asking you to tell me what's in the bill. Number two, never, ever back down from a fight. If I could complete the question, though. So you're going to give a speech or ask a question? Number three, don't accept their narrative. It's wrong. It's a fake narrative. I just disabused you of the narrative, and you don't care about the facts. It's why people don't trust people like you, because you peddle false narratives. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Let's turn up on Oof. So tell us what you found, since that is fiction. What was the truth? Yeah, well, you know, the the first couple years of DeSantis's career in the Navy. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.